The Foundation hosts podcasts to encourage a lively exchange of ideas related to our mission. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the Foundation's positions, strategies, or opinions. that everybody in the faculty thought that they were doing something health-related when I asked at a faculty meeting, you know, how many of you work on health or have a project in this space, and every hand went up. But then what we've become interested in the last five years is what we call our so what question. So what if we can understand the structure and function of human social networks? What can we do with that knowledge to make the world better? She was not alone wearing that paper gown, sitting on that table, she was not alone in that conversation. She had everyone in her community behind her and with her, virtually. How can we redesign buildings or blocks so that they are more likely to leave their apartments and go into places where interaction is easy? Our bodies are wise. Our opportunity is to listen to that wisdom. Welcome to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Pioneering Ideas Podcast. I'm Lori Melliker, the host of this podcast and a director at the Foundation, where we're always on the hunt for cutting-edge ideas with the potential to transform health and healthcare. Ideas that can help us build a culture of health. Today's episode features some incredibly innovative thinkers from the worlds of technology and sociology. First, RWJF's Chief Technology Officer, Steve Downs, talks to Roz Bacard, director and founder of the Effective Computing Research Group at the MIT Media Lab. We recently made a grant to the Media Lab to explore the role technology can play to positively enhance people's health and well-being, and it set them on a course to change their output by attempting to create a culture of health within the lab. Later, you'll hear from professors Nicholas Christakis of Yale and Eric Kleinenberg from New York University, whom the Foundation has supported separately to explore the power of social connections from very different perspectives. We brought these two pioneering thinkers together to meet for the first time on this podcast and have a free-ranging conversation about the overlaps and intersections in their work with fascinating results. You'll also hear from RWJF's current entrepreneur-in-residence, Susanna Fox, formerly of the Pew Center for Internet and the American Life Project. I asked Susanna how an organization like ours ought to be engaging in the ecosystem of ideas in order to fuel innovation. And finally, you'll hear a personal essay from a visionary thinker, Linda Stone, formerly of Apple and Microsoft, who coined the terms email apnea and continuous partial attention. She'll share her vision for creating a culture of health where mind and body are integrated and technology supports this integration. It's a rich lineup. I hope you'll enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed putting it together. And as always, I hope you'll let us know what you think and share any ideas these conversations inspire at rwjf.org podcast or on Twitter using the hashtag rwjfpodcast. Okay, without further ado, let's hear from RWJF's Steve Downs in conversation with the MIT Media Lab's Roz Picard. I'm delighted to be joined today by Roz Picard, who runs the Affective Computing Lab at the MIT Media Lab. The MIT Media Lab is well known as one of the most creative, influential technology organizations in the world. Ideas birthed and developed at the Media Lab have led to technologies that we now see in our daily lives, including Google Street View, electronic ink in an Amazon Kindle, and many more. Technology has long shaped the patterns of everyday life, and it is these patterns of how we live, work, and socialize that largely determine our health. Earlier this year, RWJF provided the Media Lab with a million-dollar grant to build a culture of health within the lab. At RWJF, we're excited to see an organization that's been so influential take up the challenge of creating technologies that make our everyday lives become healthier. Hi, Roz. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Steve. Pleasure. Thank you. So before we get into the work that we're all trying to do together, I'm curious, what does culture of health mean to you? 
Culture of health is a really big idea. It's much bigger than us just doing a bunch of projects around health. It's saying that everybody who is a part of our life is going to be thinking differently about how they take care of themselves and how they take care of each other. It's spanning not just things like are you getting exercise and what are you eating, but also the social, emotional well-being and what are the things that really make you feel the way you feel, which we think have important consequences for your behavior all day long. And that's really interesting. I think one of the things that's been exciting about connecting with you all about this is when uh, we started talking about health, you started to interpret it fairly broadly. And I think that emphasis on emotional well-being has sort of been one of the first things we've noticed about how you've interpreted it differently. Yeah, it's funny. One of the students said the other day he was tired and burned out. He needed to take a nap. And there was nowhere to sleep, so he decided to go eat a cookie. And I think how, how often we do stupid behaviors to make ourselves feel better because we haven't got a culture that helps us think about what to do in a lot of these circumstances that drive us to sometimes make mindless and sometimes poor choices when they're repeated over and over. Right. It's all connected. Our health doesn't take place in the right. sort of vacuum. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So when we first started talking with you and, and your colleagues at the Media Lab about getting more engaged in health, there was an early and I think crucial decision to work on a cross-cutting lab-wide approach rather than just carving out a slice of work that focuses on health. Can you talk about that decision? Yeah, I realized that everybody in the faculty thought that they were doing something health-related when I asked at a faculty meeting, you know, how many of you work on health or have a project in the space, and every hand went up. And yet I thought, gee, it doesn't look like we're making a huge difference as we look around at the problems that a lot of uh, our society has. And I think I certainly recognize that many of them were created or contributed to by technology. Let me just give you an example. One of our faculty was at FOO Camp, F-O-O Camp. That's the, that's <laughs> the camp run by uh, O'Reilly Media. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the guys there was observing during a break that, all these brilliant people who have so many interesting ideas and should be exchanging them with each other had gone off and they were all hunched over their smartphones, you know, breathing shallowly and not interacting with each other. And he said that he felt badly that he had created this operating system that was on all these phones mm-hmm. and designed it to make it so sticky and uh, so attractive. And yet it didn't seem to be contributing to the kind of social and emotional well-being that maybe could have been done if that had gone into part of the planning and the thinking. So we realize a lot of what we've created has not led to healthier lives and interactions. And why do you think that's been? It hasn't been given any thought, to be honest with you. Yeah. Technology's been created to be cool or to just do what's possible to make it smaller, faster, stickier, more grabs. It's the things you measure, you measure likes, you figure out how to get more likes. It gets fixated on what somebody wants to see if it's possible to do, and health and well-being have not even been a consideration in most of the design sessions that have happened. certainly hasn't been a traditional consideration here. And if I remember some of the discussions we've had, you've talked about how engineers optimize, you know, around constraints or around design mm-hmm. objectives, right. right? Yeah, and that just hasn't been one of the criteria. Anything's optimal, give the right criteria, and that really hasn't been a criteria. Well, and I'm curious because at the recent Media Lab members event, Andy Lippman, one of the senior faculty at the lab, talked a lot about responsibility and the idea that um, it used to be that you had to show possibilities, you know, what could be done, um, Mm -hmm. and to get people to believe these amazing technology inventions could actually happen. But he was saying that now we're in an era where possibility is not questioned so much, and the aim is now about responsibility in design. I wonder if you could elaborate on that thinking and how that's starting to, yeah. to seep into the yeah, lab. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, in the era of possibility, we were very bold and started a class called How to Make, well, it was going to be called How to Make Anything, and people objected and said, well, how to make almost <laughs> anything. <laughs> uh-huh. So one of the most popular classes here is called How to Make Almost Anything, and we really believe that we could make just about anything, and just about anything was possible, and the more preposterous sounding, the more we wanted to do it. And then as we realize that we could make just about anything, then suddenly there's this overabundance of all kinds of made things that don't seem to be having such a good effect on people. And we notice increasingly students saying, well, you know, we're trying to invent a better future, but what's that? (laughs) What does it really mean to make a better future? 
And we realized that we never studied or understood or taught about what that is. The students don't know how to answer that question. They didn't know what well-being mm. was. That's quite interesting. And I'm wondering about that sort of questioning about what are we really trying to build here and what, what kind of world do we want our technology to shape. That sort of notion of responsibility, I imagine that that really extends beyond the media lab to technologists in general or, or developers in general. How do you see that conversation happening, or is it not really happening at other places where people are building the next tools to be really, really sticky or really engaging? I, I think there's a real hunger for more of that conversation to translate into action. Almost all the leaders in high technology are members of the Media Lab communities. We have, you know, over 80 different companies. Um, so when we talk about the Media Lab, we're not just talking about the hundreds of faculty and students and staff who work here. We're also talking about our members that extend all over the world. And we work closely with many of them on projects, and we see the hunger to not just build things that drive the bottom line mm -hmm. in business, but to build things that every employee feels very proud that they're working on that make lives better, and then to understand what that means to really make life better. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. So I'd like to go back to what you're going to try to do at the lab. And you had this notion of first we have to change what we do, and then that will change what we think, and then that might change what we build. And I'm wondering if you could sort of elaborate on that thinking. Yeah. We have a culture here of MIT students come in and think sleep is bad, and, mm -hmm. and they're kind of like comparing notes to one-up each other on who, who's more stressed out and who has more you know, load dumped on top of them. And, grab food wherever you can for free at the seminars. That's what gets people to seminars. And cookies, usually, usually the healthiest right? Stuff. It's cookies, yeah. <laughs> and we have free, unlimited free coffee uh, and lots of junk food machines. You know, nobody was really questioning this. It's just the way it's been, and it's worked, and what's wrong with it? And yet all of these things are affecting our brains, and the more we start to look at this, we're learning that the very nature of your thought processes are, you know, actually not doing the best they could if you are depriving yourself regularly of sleep uh, and eating poorly and uh, not taking care of yourself in a social-emotional way, too. Part of what I was interested in seeing you all do is to weave health or considerations of health into the technologies that the Media Lab creates. And if I remember right, you and your colleagues really felt, well, we're not going to be able to do that until we personally experience health in a different way. Yes. I mean, MIT's always been a place of deep integrity where you really take the time to learn about things, try to figure them out, and develop expertise, and then try to live consistently with that. And that can be very hard. So we thought, we're going to try to deploy some experiments here and see if we can bring about some of the changes in our own culture here first. Yeah. And it's extremely hard, as I think you appreciate. <laughs> For sure. Uh, <laughs> But it's entering the conversation. It has started with getting all of the faculty to agree that we would have a new question for every student thesis proposal when they propose to do a new project. In addition to what's novel, how much time do you need to do it, all that kind of stuff, why is this cool and interesting. Now we're also asking this new question. How does this impact well-being? Mm. How does this impact health? And we're not telling them they have to work on health and well-being. But we think everything we build affects health and well-being. First of all, yeah, I totally agree. I really want to delve into that, that requirement because that's huge. I think that one of the things that was, as you talked about, sort of looking at the effects that some of these technologies has on people is actually a recognition, you know, as you just said, that virtually any technology that people are going to use in some way and use frequently is going to have an effect on their health, positive or negative. And I think what I had understood from some of our conversations that it's hard for people even to recognize that what they're working on has health implications unless right. they're much more mindful about health and thinking about health in a very different way. Exactly. Yeah. So if we get them thinking about the healthy aspects of the experience that this technology is fostering, you know, what is this doing for your social network? What is this doing for your social interaction? What is this doing for your relationships? You know, what is this doing for your engagement and your physiology? You know, I do a lot of measurement of physiology and emotion, and we can capture if something's putting you into that apneic state hunched over your computer, mm, or mm. if you're breathing in a way that's expanding your heart rate variability and, and having other health benefits. 
So these are all things that are now so much more possible for us to get objective information about. But people have to want to get it. You know, they have to believe that it matters to pay attention to these things. So one of the other things I'm curious about, and for listeners, the Media Lab is an interesting organization because it has a lot of sponsor companies, a lot of sort of almost a, a who's who of not just sort of technology, but technology and lifestyle and workplace companies that are highly influential. And I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about some of the reactions that you've gotten from your sponsors or just the wider Media Lab community to the fact that you're engaging in health in this way. You know, the sponsors have been tremendously positive, really excited, actually. Take a member company like Steelcase, who has been trying to figure out what brings well-being in the workplace for a long time. And if anything, maybe they're thinking, gee, it's about time you guys (laughs) got got with it. Right. We've (laughs) been waiting for you. um, Yeah. Some of them have been there a little bit before us, I'll have to be honest, in this category. Uh At the same time, they don't have the answers. They don't really know how to achieve everything that needs to be achieved in the things they build. And we've got people, meanwhile, you know, who are learning, gee, it's not just a standing desk. It seems to be more important that you move around, treadmills and movement, and how do we restructure the work we have to do so that we can get people moving. And then, and then what are the implications for the products that our members mm-hmm. make? So we're students hacking and building things differently and lots more stuff that moves. And that's just one example. Other companies, well, there's some obvious ones that are in healthcare that are getting big projects going with us involving the technology and measurement. One large pharma company is helping support the collection of a large massive amount of data in people who are prone to depression. Mm-hmm. And the idea that you know, I'm quite excited about there is how do we capture and understand what behaviors we're doing while we're well that could be sort of forecasting when things might go from being well to not well. Mm. Uh, and then so just like they can uh, forecast weather now. Yeah. Right. Early, we early say, detection of transitions or something. Right. We say, hey, you're headed for a rainstorm next month. You're headed for a really bad month ahead if yeah. you don't start making some of these little small adjustments right now. And by the way, here's the kinds of adjustments you could make right now to prevent bad health downstream. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's reminding me of a project that I saw at the lab, one of the students who was sort of using Google Glass to try it sort of, it was a different twist on quantified self. So rather than counting steps, she was counting the number of times you made other people smile over the course yes, of the day. Exactly. Which, yeah, which yeah, struck me as... Farvey's smile catcher. Yeah, yeah. That's great. You know, and what a beautiful thing to quantify. Actually, I should pause. I shouldn't say it's great to quantify necessarily, but how much more interesting and, and uplifting is that more than steps? <laughs> uh, exactly. For example. Exactly. And who's going to feel better at the end of the day, the person who hit 10,000 steps or the person who got out of their desk and went around and made a whole lot of people smile? I was going to say, who launched 1,000 smiles. Yeah. Um, I also want to ask you, as you think about your own work and, and how this sort of lab-wide new consciousness around health, if that's had any influence on the work that goes on in your own laboratory particularly. Yeah. We are much better informed. I think originally when one of my students mentioned sleep, I thought sleep, you know, that's just a separate topic and who wants to talk about that? And only as I started to learn about it did I realize how profoundly it affects the things that we had been focused on, like emotion. You know, then it started to make sense. And we had been working with kids with autism, too, who were having meltdowns and emotion dysregulation problems. And 50% of kids with autism are bad sleepers. And when they fix the sleep problem, a lot of the emotion and attention problems went away. Interesting. Yeah, so it's, it's those connections. We're working on emotion and attention, but maybe yeah. we need to work on sleep. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, as we learn about these very important connections between what our brain's doing at night and what our brain's doing during the day, we realize these are not separate phenomenon. We have to address them together. So I want to return to where where we started, and that is to the idea of a culture of health, which is the vision that we're working towards and trying to build at at Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And as you think about a culture of health and how our our country gets there, what do you think it's going to take for people, you know, around the country? How do you think we're really going to be able to, what's the most important thing we could do to build that culture of health? I think the most important thing you can do is to get the people who aren't currently thinking about health to start realizing how much it matters. It's, it's not just about preventing medical disease, right? It's about helping everybody live a better life. 
and everybody's line of work, whether it's making office furniture or making food you're putting in a vending machine or providing a service to somebody, we're all impacting one another's well-being. Or even the people that are building technology that we use every day in our lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, everybody who's in high tech, definitely. Um, All who come through the Media Lab, (laughs) they're certainly going to hear, and hopefully they'll be seeing us change. But it does take time. It's not a switch we can flip. Exactly. Well, fantastic. This has been great. Thank you very much. It has been such a pleasure talking with you, Steve. Thank you so much for your support at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. It's really going to help change the culture here and hopefully well beyond the Media Lab as well. Hi, it's Lori again. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. We'll be checking back in with Roz and others at the Media Lab in future episodes to see how this important project progresses. If you want to be sure not to miss it, subscribe now to RWJF's Pioneering Ideas podcast on iTunes. Go to rwjf.org podcast to sign up. It only takes a few seconds. Okay, let's get to Nick and Eric. These guys have a lot in common. They're both alumni of the Foundation's Investigators in Health Policy Research Program, and both have explored the power of social forces to support health. They're meeting for the first time on this podcast. Let's listen in. I'm Nicholas Christakis. I'm a physician and a social scientist, and I direct the Human Nature Lab at Yale University and also co-direct the Yale Institute for Network Sciences. A few years ago, I published a book called Connected, the surprising power of our social networks and how they shape our lives with my friend and colleague, James Fowler. And I'm very eager and happy today to be speaking to Eric. Well, likewise, I'm happy to be here. I'm I'm Eric Kleinenberg. I'm just a sociologist, not a medical doctor also, but I I do direct the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University. I've written a few different books that relate to health specifically. One is called Heat Wave, A Social Autopsy of Disaster in Chicago. And the more recent book is called Going Solo, The Extraordinary Rise and Surprising Appeal of Living Alone. And that other book came right on the heels of Heatwave intellectually, if not in years. One of the reasons I was so intrigued when the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation suggested we do this on the phone, Eric, was that, you know, when Solo came out, I couldn't help but wonder how it squared with the kind of stuff that's in our lab. Because, you know, from my perspective, given my interest in how essential social networks are in our lives and the kind of diverse roles they play, I was really interested in going solo because it seemed to be highlighting the kind of isolation from networks or disconnection from social networks that so many people seem to be having. And I'm just wondering how you got off on that course and where it took you. Well, it actually took me to really surprising places. In fact, I'd say the research for going solo, which came from a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Investigators Award, was the most surprising research I've ever conducted. I started it soon after I finished Heat Wave, and Heat Wave is a book about a week in 1995 when hundreds of people, most of them older and socially isolated, died during this treacherous heat wave in Chicago. Um, you know, I had just I had just moved there. I had just taken a job at the University of Chicago then in 2001. So we had one air conditioner in our house. And my wife and I and our newborn, we had a two-year-old and a newborn, were literally all sleeping on the floor in this one little room to try to stay cool. Meanwhile, there were people out on the street sleeping. I think that's right. I think there were millions of people in Chicago sleeping in rooms like the one you were in, and probably a handful on the streets. And actually, one of the differences that I found just from looking at photographs of the heat wave in 95 and looking at photographs of Chicago from earlier heat waves is that fewer and fewer people were going outdoors when it was hot out because people didn't feel quite as safe and secure as they did in the Mm. 1940s or 1950s. I got so interested in that week because the social dynamics mattered so much for the disaster. In fact, climate scientists typically have models that they use to estimate what the mortality will be given certain weather conditions. And one of the really fascinating things about the heat wave is that all the climate models underestimated or underpredicted the actual mortality by a very significant amount. And so they were puzzled about why so many people died that week. They knew that the weather didn't explain it, 
and they acknowledged in their own scientific writing that there had to be something social or cultural at work, but they didn't have the tools for understanding it. So I, I called that book a social autopsy because mm. I saw myself as kind of opening up the skin of the city and mm. dissecting the city and, and kind of looking for the social organs that broke down and made that week as catastrophic as it was. And one of the things I learned when I was working on it is that one reason so many Chicagoans died alone during that heat wave is that hundreds of thousands of Chicagoans were living alone and aging alone every day. That was an incredible social change that had happened in Chicago and in other American cities in the decades leading up to that heat wave. I mean, I think it is unprecedented historically and sociologically. Really, until the 1950s, you can't find a single society in the history of our species that sustain large numbers of people living alone for long periods of time. You know, it's sort of interesting. I mean, we did a study a few years ago where we asked Americans, who do you spend free time with? And then we asked them, who do you discuss important matters with? And what we found was that the average American identified about four and a half such individuals. So people, for example, might pick their spouse. And of course, not everyone has a spouse or a partner. They identified about 2.2 friends on average. We found that about five or eight or 10 percent, I can't remember, of Americans had uh, eight people. They sort of topped out around there, a small minority. But equally, at the other end of the distribution, we found that about 5% or so of Americans, same range, 5 to 10, I can't remember the precise number, had no one to discuss important matters with or spend free time with. I just found that so depressing to imagine that 5 to 10% of Americans had no one to discuss personal matters with or spend their free time with. So When I saw Going Solo, I thought, in a way, it was going to be addressing what I thought to be a very depressing and dispiriting fact. But the pitch to the book is a little bit more positive, right? Well, there is a strong and important distinction between living alone, being socially isolated, feeling lonely, and being withdrawn. These are very different things. Mm. And Mm. and living alone is very different than being alone. So. I'm not making any inference about whether the people who are living alone are lonely or isolated. Mm. And one of the amazing and surprising discoveries I made from this research is that, in fact, people who live alone, on average, are more socially active in many key ways than people who live with others. They're more likely to spend time with friends and neighbors than people who are married, which makes some sense because people who are married have a companion and a confidant right you know, in the next room or in the room with them. But people who live alone are also civically engaged in all kinds of interesting ways. They're, for instance, more likely to volunteer in civic organizations. They're more likely to attend recreational events, uh, Mm. cultural events like book readings and concerts and things of that nature. What do you think is driving this trend? You know, it's sort of interesting. I mean, part of it might be just that we're richer, of course, right? I mean, since time immemorial, people have formed households for purely utilitarian grounds. But what do you see as some of the reasons for this social shift? Clearly, affluence is part of it. But there's more to the story than that, we know, because there's a lot of affluent places where people don't live alone. So among the key things I think that are driving this change are first the incredible rise in the status of women. So when women gain control of their own lives and their own bodies, uh, when women enter into the labor force in mass, you start to see the age of first marriage increase steadily and the divorce rate goes up. And that's clearly a a major driver here. Another is the rise of welfare states. And when you have health insurance and social security, public transit, all kinds of infrastructure that allows people to connect with each other, you also make it possible for people Mm. to maintain their independence longer Mm. than before. Really quickly, I think that urbanization has been a big driver of this because a lot of people who live alone in cities, but they don't want to be isolated, and they effectively live in one place, but they use the streets and sidewalks and cafes and restaurants as their living rooms Mm. uh, and live in a very social way. And clearly the aging of the population is another big driver. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's like one of those sort of macro phenomena that kind of creeps up on you, and unless you're paying attention, you don't notice it. And then when you think about it, it's a pretty stark change in the way we live our lives, actually, in our society. It it really is. What this suggests, let's assume that some fraction of this is non-volitional. Some of these people are living alone. They don't want to. Their spouse died. They have no children or friends or whatever. Or it's unpleasant to these individuals. But nevertheless, for some significant fraction of these people, this is a desired state which 
is, as you said, abetted by wealth and technology and other changes in our societies. What's fascinating to me about that insight is from the point of view of a lot of the work that we've been doing lately, we study the structure and function of human social networks and human social interactions. And we try to understand why do human beings make these ornate, these beautiful things. Like if you've ever seen a picture of a network, you know that there are these elaborate, ornate, intricate patterns, like a knotted set of Christmas tree lights, for example. And they have very reproducible structure, mathematical structure. When you map networks for pretty much wherever you go in the world or almost any social environment, these networks look the same, which is actually, I think, a deep conundrum. Like, why do they look the same? And part of what we've been doing lately is trying to explore the evolutionary biology and the genetics of human social interaction. Why do we have friends at all? We believe that there is actually a strong evolutionary basis for this. James Fowler and I have begun to explore this a little bit. Other labs around the country have been looking at this. And now I look at the stuff that you're talking about, and it seems like, well, when people have the option not to do it, they may not. Large numbers of people may not. It's as if when we didn't have the choice, we were compelled to form these types of friendship interactions. When we have the choice, we can withdraw. And what's interesting is there was always a tradition of, of monasticism, people who went solo, but the prevalence that we are seeing now in a kind of modern environment puts, this, I won't say calls into question is too strong a word, but certainly raises some tensions in terms of understanding what I would regard to be people's fundamental desire for social interaction. So how to resolve that? You know, on the one hand, we, we believe we are a social animal, we must be social. On the other hand, we find when we don't have to be social, many of us choose not to be. And I don't have an answer for that, but I think that's interesting. Yeah. I think it's fascinating, and I'll give you kind of my sociological take on it because I think I share some of your puzzlement over this social fact that there's so many people who are going solo, but I just have a slightly different interpretation of it. So mm. I actually think that the reason that living alone has become so prevalent in the world's most affluent and robust societies and the places that have these big, bustling cities with rich social life and strong welfare states is because it's actually our interdependence that makes our independence possible. Mm. Uh, it's only when you get a, a high level of... That's a nice resolution of the paradox, Professor Kleinenberg. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working on it for a while. Yeah, hopefully. exactly. So hopefully you let me run with it. And the idea is effectively that the people who live alone are not rejecting social life. They're not kind of following up on the monastic tradition. They're actually involved in the social world in all kinds of interesting ways but they are living alone to surprisingly high numbers to some extent because they can and because it allows them to achieve a level of control of their time and their space, which we never had the luxury to do before. Especially now, we live in such a, a hyper-connected age, right? So many of us are having problems disengaging. You know, we are addicted to our devices. We're constantly friending people and tweeting and emailing and texting. There's so many demands on us in social life today that I think a growing number of people have decided that they can actually be involved in the social world in intense ways, but have a little retreat on their own. Now, let me be clear that most people expect to live with someone at some point. The overwhelming majority of Americans will get married and stay married for some time. People don't aspire to live alone forever for the most part. But the thing is that if we don't really have a relationship that feels comforting and secure, that makes us feel good about ourselves and, and give us some emotional fulfillment, we now feel like we're better off on our own than we are experiencing the loneliness of a bad relationship. And our affluence allows us to do that. So, mm. so I actually think it is somewhat resolvable, but it does pose a really interesting set of questions for people like you who are interested in social networks because no doubt the networks of people who live alone are different than those mm. of people who are married. And I wonder if that's something that you've looked at in your research. Well, we've been looking, so what's interesting about that question is there's, it's clearly the case that there is variation across individuals in the kind of social networks they have. People vary, for example, in their taste for friendship. On the most simplest level, some people are gregarious and some are shy, and so people will vary in how many friends they have. And we've shown that not only that propensity, you know, to ha how many friends you have is partially genetic, but also social, of course. But even more complex things than simply how many friends you have can also be partially explained by your genes. So, for example, where you are in the network, whether you're in the center with many friends or on the periphery with many friends, 
and whether your friends know each other, for example, is also an important feature. So you might have four friends who don't know each other. I have four friends who do know each other. We have the same number of friends, but this thing called transitivity, which is the probability that two of your friends know each other, can differ between you and me, for example. And so we found that these and other attributes of individuals, whether they have many or few friends, whether their friends are friends with each other, whether they are in the middle or on the edge of the network, these kinds of things, which are very simple ways to describe where someone is in the network, vary across individuals, and that this variation is in part explained by their genes. So just to pick a simple example, about 47% of the variation in how many friends people have can be explained by their genes. But the remaining 53% is explained by how they were raised, their environment, where they live, and things like that. So your question was, the first part of my answer to that topic would be, there's some variation across individuals. These networks have different locations. It's like they're different neighborhoods in the social fabric. If you imagine a, um, an old-fashioned American quilt, and this is like this social fabric, this like vast fabric of humanity, people could be on different patches, for instance, or the different little neighborhoods. But the question is, what explains who is where? But what's interesting to me about all this is not so much the differences we have among ourselves, but rather our commonalities. And I'm interested in the kind of way in which, regardless of who you are or where you are, we humans all share this very particular way of being social in common. And I would suggest to you, and we've done some work like this, in fact, I'll tell you an example. So if it's the case that the way we make our social networks is partly driven by our genes, and rooted in our evolutionary biology and not just in our sociology, although both are important. It suggests that if we could fly back 10,000 years and look at how humans lived during the Pleistocene, we would be able to see that their networks look just like ours. Of course, we can't do that, but what we decided to do instead was to find a population on the planet right now that lived like we did 10,000 years ago. So what we did is, is we picked the Hadza hunter-gatherers, and the Hadza are uh, there are only about a thousand of them left. Uh, they live in around Lake Ayatsi in Tanzania. They hunt and they gather for their food. They sleep out under the stars. They have no material possessions to speak of. So they live like we did 10,000 years ago. And what we did is, is we made a photographic census of the Hadza, kind of Hadza Facebook, big posters with all the photographs of all the adult Hadza, and took it into the field, and we asked every adult Hadza to name their friends in a variety of ways. And then we mapped the social networks of these Hadza. And what we found was that even though in the intervening 10,000 years we've invented agriculture, we've invented cities, we've invented telephony, the Hadza social networks look just like ours. They were indistinguishable mathematically and structurally from other networks, networks of school kids in the United States, telephone networks in the United States or other developing countries and so forth and so on. That's so what, fascinating and it strikes me that you're one of the few people who's trained do this kind of work as a social scientist and also understands the health implications of these networks in the way that you do because you're also a medical doctor. And one of the things I really wanted to ask you in this conversation is what kinds of health implications are there of this fact that our social networks take a similar form yeah. over time and across different places. How does knowing that help us think about yeah. our health and well-being in ways that we aren't used to doing? And that's something, you know, that we, the way I would answer that is I would say, so we spent the first five or ten years, being the late 1990s, trying to understand, using observational methods, the structure and function of networks. So we tried to say, okay, well, actually the first thing we did is we tried to identify forms of social contagion. So how is it that behaviors that I evince might affect the probability that my friends would evince those behaviors and that there'd be kind of cascade effect through the network? And initially we used observational methods to do this. Eventually we started doing experiments. We did an experiment, for example, where we created artificial networks with real people and we observed to infect one person with an idea or if one person behaves a particular way, how does it affect the probability that others to whom he's connected and in turn to whom they are connected will also behave this way? So we spent about five or ten years, to closer to ten, trying to figure out the function of social networks was the first thing we tackled. Okay, how does social contagion work? And then we became interested in the structure of networks. Networks seem to create a fertile environment for contagion. What's the structure of human social interactions that makes contagion possible? So we did a bunch of work on that. But then what we've become interested in the last five years is what we call, and I think this is an answer to this topic, what we call our so what question. 
So what if we can understand the structure and function of human social networks? What can we do with that knowledge to make the world better? And what we've begun to do the last few years is a kind of program of work in which we do large-scale experiments, often involving thousands, tens of thousands of people. We map the networks of social interactions of these individuals, and then we see if we can identify structurally influential people, people who seem to be in locations within the network, such that if they change their behavior, it may affect the behavior of the individuals around them, and then try to target those individuals with public health interventions. Because our fantasy is, our hope is, there may be ways of identifying, let's say, 10 to 20% of a population, persuading them to adopt a clean water intervention, for example, or uh, vaccination. We're trying to, let's say, reduce vaccine avoidance in India, for example. Who do we need to persuade in a village to have favorable ideas about vaccination and get vaccinated so that if those individuals do it, we can uh, capitalize on the properties of social contagion and get the whole village to change its mind. So how can we move these villages to have better behaviors? Or for example, if you're trying to reduce bullying in schools or you're trying to get kids to wear their seatbelts or their bike helmets, how can you understand social interactions in a school, identify influential people and then try to get them to change their behavior so the whole school changes their behavior. And I think it's fascinating. So, Nick, I'm just curious, given what you're saying about the structure and function of social networks, have you started to identify different ways that small groups or even large societies can build more social cohesion and connectedness and really start to promote health in ways that we haven't been able to recognize before? You know, I would say the answer to that would be Yes and no. I would be in favor of sort of nudge-type, light-touch kind of tweaks in structures around us that might affect people's agency. That is to say, ways in which you could manipulate through urban planning, through social interventions, through physician practices, likely modify the environment that people are in in ways that might foster social cohesion. I mean, part of the reason I think one needs to think about it this way is that it's very difficult to force people to be friends with each other. I mean, in the Army, you can order people to work in units. But if I came to you and I said, okay, I'm going to introduce you 10 neighbors, and you have to have a block party, and you have to become friends, it doesn't work that way. You can't really force it. But you can modify, you can create institutional structures that create a permissive environment and allow people's, what I would regard to be natural tendencies, to emerge. And in a way, it's almost the flip side of what you were discussing earlier with going solo. There have been macro social changes in our society that permit some individuals to live alone. These same macro changes may also have other positive and negative implications for social cohesion. And I think there are some interventions with respect to public places, with respect to classroom size, with respect to the whole institutional kind of, you know, the whole bowling alone, the whole bowling club kind of model. There are things we can do in our society to foster cohesion, but I don't think we can force it. What do you think? So for the last couple of years, I've had this incredible experience on some design projects which take up this challenge of you know, thinking about ways to promote more cohesion and connectedness. So where I landed on this is that you actually can do some things with design to help to promote social interaction. And one is to just be attentive to the social infrastructure of sidewalks and neighborhoods and public spaces at the neighborhood level or even at the building level. So, for instance, if we know that massive numbers of people are living alone, how can we redesign buildings or blocks so that they are more likely to leave their apartments and go into places where interaction is easy? Mm -hmm. uh, you clearly need a certain kind of commercial infrastructure to make that happen, but at the level mm -hmm. of the building, maybe you can compromise some of the space in a private apartment and create more public spaces that people could share. Or even more subtle things like, for instance, zoning laws that require shops to be open till 10 p.m., for example, as a condition of X, Y, or Z, not have all the stores in the neighborhood shut down at 6 o'clock, so that increases foot traffic, lighting, and so forth. I mean, in other words, there are rules and regulations one might manipulate that help nudge a kind of social interaction and a kind of presence in a public space that might be desirable, or I, often is. I think that's exactly right. And we live in this moment now where the climate really is changing, and I think everyone recognizes that climate security is going to be a project for us, like Homeland Security was over the last decade. We're going to be doing a lot of investment and redesign, and as we think about how to promote health and well-being in the context of 
this warming planet with rising sea levels and the more heat waves and storm surges. We need to build places that aren't just walled up and protected from a disaster, but also places that work to promote our health and well-being every day. And this is a fascinating area where uh, the world of design and the world of sociology and social networks is intersecting with the, with the world of health and medicine. It even penetrates into the design of, of hospitals and other caring institutions. So I see this as a frontier area. I don't know, Nick, maybe like in 10 years, you and I can have another podcast conversation. Where exactly. Work with how, how, and all the improvements we made there. Exactly. How did, social, how did the social engineering project work out? Well, I've had such a good time talking with you, Eric. I'm really glad they set this up. Me too. Let's, uh, let's talk another time soon. During my time as a program officer for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Investigator Awards Program, I've had so many individual conversations with these two innovators. I was so thrilled to be a fly on the wall to watch the sparks fly while they talked to each other. What pioneering ideas did this conversation inspire in you? Go to rwjf.org podcast or follow RWJF Podcast and join the discussion. Next up, I sit down with RWJF's current entrepreneur-in-residence, Susanna Fox, to talk about culture change and how big organizations like ours should be exploring innovation. In the first blog post you wrote for our Culture of Health blog, you talked about the process of creating culture change, and you used the metaphor of dropping a pebble in a pond. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. I was very lucky to know Tom Ferguson, who was an MD, who was a leader in the self-care movement starting in the 70s. And he got a small grant from the foundation early in the 2000s, I think it was 2001, 2002, to write a white paper. And it probably wasn't that much money, but the foundation took a chance on him. And that was a pebble in a pond. And the paper that he wrote was all the evidence that he brought around the idea of an e-patient. And the e in e-patient stands for all kinds of things like empowered, engaged, and it also can stand for electronic because it was the beginning of the possibility of the internet. And what's really amazing is that that white paper and Tom's vision has taken off and become, frankly, a worldwide movement where people are starting to engage and stand up for themselves as patients and caregivers. And I'm not sure that would have come about if the foundation hadn't taken that chance on Tom and asked him to write that white paper and bring his ideas all in one place. And that's the kind of thing that I think the foundation can do more of. And is doing and should be constantly looking for the possibility that there's a small idea that could really gain ground. And I think the coming decade is really going to be so much more about where those ideas are coming from patients and caregivers. It's a really interesting metaphor. I wonder what you think about how we measure or keep track of whether a pebble has impact, such as in the story that you describe. It's one of those things where That particular grant actually might have been seen as a failure in some ways. He was supposed to finish it in one year, and he took six years (laughs) to write that paper. And so in some ways it wasn't necessarily, on paper it might not have looked like a success. How do you see a decade later that it really has become a worldwide movement? I think that kind of measurement is really difficult. And I think that we're going to need to look to different disciplines when we're talking about culture change, you know, we're going to have to be looking to anthropologists, for example, where we see a change in language and and looking for where did a vocabulary word start as an anomaly and now it's just part of everyone's lexicon. I think those are the kinds of measures that, that we can be looking for. You mentioned bringing in the anthropologist perspective, which we're also getting as a bonus when we bring you in, given your background in that discipline. Are there other disciplines that you think we should try to engage more, perhaps that aren't typically listening to our content or engaged in our discussions about uh, how we can achieve or build a culture of health? I really believe that the more we can bring in artists, the more that we'll be able to 
um, understand and see culture change because so much of um, the work of artists is interpreting the world around them and reflecting back on culture change. And so I think the more that, that the foundation can look to the arts in all kinds of ways and actually spark artistic expression of health, where it doesn't necessarily have to be a fine artist, somebody who's established. This could be anybody who might produce something, produce a different kind of expression. How do you see other foundations managing their engagement with idea ecosystems, both in terms of bringing new ideas in and also sharing ideas out? I think all of us have an opportunity to do more listening thanks to social media. And the most important lesson that I learned in this was actually in a meeting with an executive from Procter & Gamble. They're well known as having really established themselves as the consumer marketing gurus that they are. And this executive said that Procter & Gamble is no longer engaging in surveys or focus groups, that they're doing all of their research by listening online. And he said that his mantra for his team is, listen more than ask. So I really think that smart organizations don't think that they can hold the clipboard and ask the questions, but rather put down the clipboard and listen. And so social media is one way to do that. I think getting outside of the office and going into communities of all kinds is another way. I've seen some really interesting work in hospitals where hospitals are opening up to the community and inviting community members in. I think that's a wonderful way to learn from the constituency. And I think that that kind of work is very, very difficult because you never know what somebody's going to say. And you might not like what, they, what you find out when they come in or when you go into the community. But I really think we need more of that kind of, you know, I think of it like a mystery shopper where you go in and you just listen and you don't even identify yourself. And that's the power, for example, of Twitter. During the ACA rollout, Enroll America was using Twitter analytics to listen in on conversations in different regions of the country and then work on the messaging so that if we really want to reach, for example, young people in Texas, then we really need to understand what those people are talking about. And so that's what I think, that's where the smart organizations are heading. You recently wrote a blog post called Sharing is the Future of Healthcare. I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that is inspired by some of the field work that I did in communities of people living with rare disease. And that's an example of a woman I met in my field work called Peggy who was talking with me about what she learned from her online community and what she was able to bring offline to a clinical conversation. And what she realized is that every time she went to a new doctor, the new doctor confessed to Googling her condition right before he or she walked into the room. And when she realized that was going on, she what was really neat is that she wasn't angry about it or disappointed. It was the sense that, well, of course they are. I have a very rare combination of conditions, but let me be the person who knows the most. It doesn't have to be the clinician who has all of the answers. Together we can crowdsource all the answers, or more importantly, crowdsource the questions to ask. And because of her participation in an online community, she was able to stand up to a doctor who was urging her to take a certain drug, which she knew, because of her community, would be lethal for her. And it was only because of the strength of her community where she was not alone, wearing that paper gown, sitting on that table, she was not alone in that conversation. She had everyone in her community behind her and with her virtually. And I think that that is an incredible superpower that everybody has access to now. It's a fascinating story. It's a great example. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It was really, I really enjoyed it. I learned so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Finally today, I'm really excited to include a personal essay from our good friend, Linda Stone, who shares her vision for building a culture of health. 
one where we harness technology to help us listen to our bodies, not just our minds. A tall order in today's busy, media-saturated world. I hear her thinking echoed a lot in the ideas discussed earlier in today's episode. Do you? Here's Linda. Can technology support us in reconnecting to the essence of who we are? When we're born, we know when we're hungry and when we're full. We pee when we have to pee and sleep when we're tired. Our minds don't overrule those feelings and tell our bodies what to do, when. As we grow up, the mind often takes over. We read an article that tells us what to eat, and we use that article as an authority instead of how we feel. We sit at our desks, responding to email, and the mind says, just three more, then you can take a break, even when the body is saying, hey, hey, time for a bathroom break. In our first steps with any new technologies, we often begin with what the technology does well, and today, technology is really good at counting. The personal health technologies we've created are quantified self technologies. How many steps did I take? How many calories did I consume? Our hope is that all these numbers are going to motivate us to appropriate behavior change. We assume that what we can easily measure is what matters. We assume that if we know the numbers, we can improve them. This may work for some of the people some of the time, but there's another approach. I used to quantify many aspects of my life. I knew numbers. I was less aware of how I felt. I knew how much water I drank. I knew what I had eaten in a day, how far and how long I had walked. I knew my blood work. I believed that by tracking these things, I could optimize for health. In my world, my mind was the boss, and my body was in service to my mind. My brain ran the show, and my body struggled to keep up. And then I got sick. Tracking the numbers hadn't spared me. To begin to move back toward health, knowing how I felt, and treating mind and body as partners was essential. When I was tired, instead of overriding that feeling, I began to pay attention and to allow for rest. I came to think of this as being embodied, mind and body as friends. When I was sick, I didn't know if I'd be able to get up and down the stairs, much less hit the numbers that had been my guidelines. I felt beat up by the numbers. They were always telling me that I was failing. I started to shift my thinking away from goals like, I need to walk X number of steps, and toward intentions like, in every moment, every action will serve my good health. I could succeed with this intention, and I could celebrate that success moment to moment, all day long. I wondered if health technologies, instead of focusing on helping us count our steps and our caloric intake, could also support us in our ability to sense, feel, and be embodied. These new technologies could use sensory input and connect us with our essential nature, the essence of who we are, and support our sense of embodiment, mind and body as friends. I call this family of technologies essential self technologies. I think about this in terms of essential self skills, practices, and technologies. Psychologist Fred Munch uses a phrase that I like, autonomic resilience, to describe the ability of our body and mind to fluidly interact with the demands of everyday life in a flexible manner that results in a return to homeostasis. This is an essential self-skill. Essential self-skills include autonomic resilience, embodiment, and emotional self-regulation. Essential self-practices might include everything from meditation and yoga to qigong and ballroom dancing. Essential self-technologies are an emerging set of technologies that use data, but the data is in the background. Our relationship with the technologies is through our senses and not solely through our quantifying, judging mind. When the mind overrules the body, the wisdom of the body is lost. Essential self-skills, practices, and technologies are a path back to our wise bodies. Many of these technologies are passive, ambient, and non-invasive. These technologies are experienced through our senses, and they might use light, vibration, or sound, temperature, music, or rhythm, pulse, or pressure. 
1997, I coined the phrase continuous partial attention to describe our evolving relationship with personal technologies and with each other as we use these technologies. As we spent more and more time in front of screens and online, we found ourselves texting and driving or writing emails while we talked on the phone. We were continuously paying partial attention to everything around us, continuous partial attention. As I began to explore how we could reclaim our attention, I was diagnosed with a disabling illness that required a lot of surgery. I had chronic flu-like symptoms. My MD suggested that buteco breathing, a technique to help asthmatics, might be helpful. I began the practice, making time for the exercises each day before getting on the computer. And each day, I noticed that once I started working on the computer, my breathing became shallower, or I held my breath for long periods of time. I studied this in myself and then began months of informal observations with a couple hundred others and ran very informal experiments at my dining room table, tracking heart rate variability and pulse and noticing physiological changes in people who were emailing and texting. I interviewed neuroscientists psychologists, cardiologists, osteopaths, body workers, and others, and reviewed the research on the impact of cumulative shallow breathing and breath holding. In early 2008, I first posted on what I called email apnea or screen apnea based on my informal research. Many people wrote to tell me that they were experiencing this. We're at the beginning of our relationship with our personal technologies. We haven't yet figured out how to stay embodied in our relationship with these devices. In my research, I found that about 20% of those I tested did not have screen apnea. Musicians and dancers who were members of this group fascinated me. They learned breathing techniques to manage their energy, emotions, and fear before going on stage. I learned that beginning musicians tend to merge with their instrument, but as one becomes more experienced, they learn to be embodied and separate from their instrument. The same is true in partner dancing. One needs to be embodied and separate, or it will be impossible to balance. I thought, we're at the beginning of our relationship with personal technologies, and in this relationship, we're very much like beginning musicians or dancers. We haven't figured out how to stay embodied as we're working with these devices. Shallow breathing or email apnea is a symptom of our early relationship with our screens. How can we evolve this relationship with technology in a way that better supports our health? The first essential self-technology I ever experienced was OMO. It was created by Dr. Kelly Dobson OMO is the shape and size of a small watermelon. It's a robot with 24 ribs encased in very soft plastic. OMO sits on your belly and first syncs up with your breathing and then gradually OMO slows its breathing, which naturally slows your breathing. This technology bypasses the mind and speaks directly to the senses, allowing the body to feel what's possible. Essential self-technologies support us to be more embodied, connected to our sensing self, and connected to the present moment, mind partnered with body. Our bodies are wise. Our opportunity is to listen to that wisdom. The path to recovering health relies on the integration of mind, body, and spirit. Doesn't the real path to maintaining health rely on that as well? To build a culture of health, our opportunity is to evolve a more sustainable relationship with our devices. What if technology could support us in connecting to our essence, to our essential self? I'm Linda Stone, and I encourage you to consider how you can cultivate your capacity for embodiment, both on and off technology, to build a culture of health. To see a list of essential self technologies I'm exploring now, visit rwjf.org slash podcast.
for listening. And thanks to Roz Picard, Nicholas Christakis, Eric Kleinenberg, Susanna Fox, and Linda Stone for joining us. You can subscribe to RWJF's Pioneering Ideas podcast on iTunes, where you can also find past episodes. Join the discussion about the ideas in today's episode and find all related links at rwjf.org podcast. We'll see you on the next episode, where, among other topics, we'll hear from medical students experiencing a flipped classroom approach, explore the exciting potential of agile science with our grantee Eric Heckler, and discuss what collaborative economy can mean for building a culture of health with thought leader Rachel Botsman. Until then, be well. <laughs>